Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. This is David Shoemaker, and I'd like to welcome you to Living to Lima. Now, in this month's segment, we're going to be talking about cognitive therapy for magicians. Um, before you listen to this segment, you might want to listen to the segment I did a couple months ago on the role of the ego in the great work, because essentially much of what we're going to be talking about today relates to ego functions, and I'll be fleshing that out as I as I go here. Now, um, we're talking about ego, but essentially that's going to be used synonymously um, with the Kabbalistic psychology term Ruach, and I've touched on this in various ways over various segments, but um, as a reminder of what I'm talking about here, when I say ego um, or Ruach, I am talking about the part of your consciousness that is your everyday waking self, the part of you that is the I that gets up and goes to work and comes home and makes dinner and all of that. I'm not talking, I'm not using the word ego um, to refer to um, anything in a pejorative way. Um, this isn't egotistical or egocentric. It's just ego as the I. Okay. So um, what does the ego do for us? As I said on the, the earlier segment, um, the ego is like a lens or a filter through which we perceive reality. The ego is a tool of ours that we employ in the great work. The ego is our mediator between the inner life and the outer life. And if that lens, if that filter of the ego is distorted, is cloudy, is imbalanced, is unduly skewed by um, bias, prejudice, blind spots, we will not be functioning maximally and optimally as magicians. Now, obviously, as magicians, we deal with a lot of material, symbolic material, archetypal material, unconscious material, um, that has not all that much to do with the ego. And those things are dealt with on their own plane, through ritual, through astral work, through any number of means that, that are more esoteric. But when it comes to the ego, I think we have to deal with it first on its own plane, um, and this, unfortunately, is a stumbling block I've found for a lot of magicians in that um, there is a tendency to gloss over simple, everyday, um, negative, habitual patterns in thinking um, and to skip right to more esoteric work. So, in other words, ignoring some of the foundations, um, some of the basic balanced foundations of the psyche that undergird effective magical work. Now, unfortunately, I'm well aware of this phenomenon because it's not unlike what many psychotherapists deal with, um, having come through school and thought a lot about the mind and the way people work. And um, it's awfully easy to get um, an inflated ego whereby we conclude that we figured ourselves out. So, you know, I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, checks and balances on my ego on a day-to-day -day basis because surely I've got that figured out, right? Well, magicians do a version of that, I think, uh, often, which is I've, I've attained to these states of lofty consciousness, therefore I must be functioning perfectly well on a day-to-day -day basis and uh, I don't need any tweaking in my personality. Um, so... You know, obviously, we can all grow um, in many ways, and none of us are immune to uh, to having some blind spots and 
you know, areas in our day-to-day lives that trip us up. So cognitive therapy is really um, a good technology of daily mental and magical hygiene at the level of the ego that I think is useful in any magician's arsenal. So let's look at a little bit of uh, background regarding what cognitive therapy is. Um, cognitive therapy, sometimes called cognitive behavioral therapy, um, derives primarily from the work of Aaron Beck, who is a psychiatrist uh, on the East Coast. And in the 60s and 70s, he was developing his very seminal uh, theory on um, on this approach. And he has trained several generations of psychotherapists in this approach. Basically, the theory is that um, disturbing emotions, such as anxiety and depression and anger and so on, are fundamentally rooted in negative habitual thought patterns that um, get ingrained in us through our upbringing and through later experiences in life, through our day-to-day process of taking in information from the environment and making decisions about what it means. And if we get into habits that are unduly skewed toward toward the negative side, Um, in our views of ourselves or of other people or of the world in general, our future, our past, these sort of key um, cognitive schema that we have about the universe. If we get stuck in a rut in terms of these thought patterns, then we are more likely to suffer from depression, anxiety, uh, anger control issues, um, all all manner of disturbing emotional processes. And... um, Therefore, the, the process of getting out of that rut is what cognitive therapy is designed to be. Um, by examining these habits of thought, looking for the distorted thinking, the, the irrational, um, maladaptive, and unduly negative thought patterns, and by discovering those and replacing them gradually and progressively with more realistic, positive, and constructive thoughts, then we actually reprogram ourselves and the emotional disturbances go away. Now, I should emphasize that this is not a process that is about pretending bad stuff isn't there or talking ourselves out of feeling bad about something that really legitimately probably ought to make us feel bad. This is about what we lay on top of that, that may make it worse. Um, That is, sometimes something bad really has happened. We have lost our job. That's bad. If you feel depressed and angry and frustrated by that, that's not irrational. That's not a cognitive distortion. That's reality. But if you add a layer on top of that that says, I've lost my job and I'll probably never get one I like, I'll probably never be hireable in the field that I want to work in, you start laying on stuff like that, that's optional. That's just you making you feel worse. So in many cases, what we're talking about is not erasing the bad thing that happens, but it's reformulating what we lay on top of it. That said, there are plenty of circumstances when we feel bad, not because a bad thing has actually happened, but because of what's going on in our head. Classic example of this is when we get upset because we think we know what someone's thinking about us. They're thinking they don't like us, or they're criticizing us in their mind and aren't saying anything. We start to mind read and imagine that we know what they're thinking. Then we get mad at them, and um, 
the fact is we don't have any evidence that that's what they're thinking, but we've stirred ourselves up into an emotional place just by imagining that we do know what they're thinking. So that's an, another sort of example of this. Now, the research I'm aware of on this approach suggests that this approach is one of the, if not the, most effective treatment for major depressive disorder, for anxiety disorders, including um, generalized anxieties, and uh, many of these principles are used in treating panic attacks. This really is one of the most common and most widely effective techniques out there, and um, that's why so many psychotherapists around the world use it, even if they don't primarily identify themselves as cognitive therapists. You'll know from many of my discussions here that I have a strong interest in the work of Carl Jung and an entirely different field and approach to dealing with the human psyche. But on a day-to-day -day basis, even in my practice, a lot of what I'm doing in a nuts and bolts sort of way, moment to moment, is cognitive therapy principles applied to whatever problems the person's brought in to me. Now, I've mentioned several times so far today the term cognitive distortion. And uh, an author named David Burns, who's a psychiatrist who studied with Aaron Beck, has been one of the most important authors and lecturers on cognitive therapy. And he has more or less codified 10 common cognitive distortions that uh, almost everyone engages in from time to time. Um, one of the books that I strongly recommend is David Burns' book called The Feeling Good Handbook, and there'll be a link to that on the podcast blog and also on the livingthelema.com site. Um, so let's review these 10 common cognitive distortions and go into a bit of detail about each one, because these are the things that you're going to be wrestling with in a day-to-day -day practical way, working with cognitive therapy as a sort of self-therapy technique um, as a magician. So what I'm going to do with each of these distorted thinking patterns is present a little bit of information about what the distorted pattern is and then give you some suggestions for ways to unravel that, to, um, to sort of punch a hole in the distorted thinking and get to something a little more realistic and constructive. The first pattern is called all-or-nothing thinking. And uh, a lot of these will be pretty self-explanatory based on the name, but this is when the world is seen in black and white, situations are seen in black and white patterns, um, that uh, it has to be one way and not another. If I don't get a perfect score on a test, I failed completely. It's, it's black and white, it's perfectionistic. Um, if um, my friend doesn't support me on this issue, then she's a terrible friend, that sort of thing. So um, there's no room for gray area. And because of that, that's the reality testing that you want to do with yourself. Uh, you want to be asking yourself, are there other ways you can think about the issue? Um, is there a gray area? Is there an in-between area that I'm ignoring here and acting as if it's just one or the other? Um, is this really true or have I just chosen to think about it this way? Does it have to be one way or the other? Um, so that's all or nothing thinking. The, uh, the second pattern is jumping to conclusions. Um, now, often this is an anxiety-arousing pattern because we are thinking about an upcoming event and we're kind of imagining um, worst-case scenarios about how it's going to go. So sure enough, we work ourselves up into an agitated state, uh, not because there's any evidence that it's going to be as bad as we're thinking. Um, other examples of this um, 
boss gives you a so-so performance evaluation and you think to yourself, I'm never going to get promoted or um, your partner has been quiet and withdrawn lately and you conclude that he or she doesn't love you anymore. And so kind of uh, really jumping past a lot of the facts of the situation into fears about the situation. Um, so the uh, the mind reading that I mentioned earlier is another example of this, where you think you know what someone's thinking and you get all upset about it. The thing to do for reality testing here is, uh, what's the evidence that this thing is really likely to happen? What's the evidence that what I'm afraid of is really likely? Um, has this really happened often in the past? You know, so you kind of tease out whether there's any evidence from the past that this is likely. Um, saying to yourself, reminding yourself that you don't have evidence of what the person's thinking about you is another way to check in and uh, overturn the pattern. So um, that's some things to do about jumping to conclusions. The next one's magnification. Um, this is also known as catastrophizing. Um, if, uh, if my spouse left me, life wouldn't be li worth living anymore. I might as well just end it all. Or to bring it home a little bit uh, to our particular work, uh, you know, if, if you're thinking, oh, if I don't get to be deacon, if they don't pick me as an officer in, in these next few masses, then I won't be able to contribute to the body and it's just going to go downhill from here. You know, so all kinds of predictions of how um, an event that may actually be likely to occur would be catastrophic and you'd just fall apart. Well, the, the way to reality test this is to remind yourself of the way you would adapt to adverse circumstances. So uh, instead of something catastrophic, like my life falling apart if I lose my job, I talk to myself about, okay, how would I really cope if that happened? I would, it would be frustrating. It would be financially tight. I'd be pretty upset about it, but I've bounced back before from things and I can, you know, get some retraining if I need to. I'd stay with friends if I have financial troubles, you know. And so you talk to yourself about how a loss of a job doesn't mean you're automatically pushing a shopping cart on the street, that there is some middle ground there in terms of your own coping. So that's magnification. Uh, next, we have overgeneralization. Um, now, the hallmarks of this are the use of words like always and never. So, for an example, um, you are working on a project at your local body and uh, someone comes in late and you think to yourself, oh, they're always late. You know, well, they're probably not always late. Maybe they're frequently late. Maybe they are annoyingly late um, more than you'd like. But if you think in terms of always, you're going to be more upset than if you thought in terms of um, something more, a more moderate kind of label for that. Um, another example is that you make a mistake and you say to yourself, I can't do anything right. Um, so, you know, the mistake is there, maybe that's legitimate, but the way you're talking to yourself about it as if, um, this is a, just a character flaw that's pervasive for you, then that's not fair to you. You know, that's going to make you feel worse. And, you know, frankly, it's just not as accurate. It's not as realistic. So you can see the common thread that's developing here, which is that not only are we teaching ourselves to respond more positively, but it turns out 
the more positive way of responding is actually more realistic as well and more constructive and uh, practical in terms of giving us an ability to work with the situation. So the next uh, distortion is the mental filter. And basically this is kind of a tunnel vision where uh, you have a negative belief about yourself or someone else about a situation and you pick out details in your experience that seem to confirm the belief you already have, the negative belief. And basically, nothing else gets in. It, the, the positive stuff is filtered out. Um, you get a bunch of compliments at work, but then at the end of the day, one person has a critical thing to say to you, and that's what you focus on all night. You're, you're not thinking about the 15 people who said nice things to you. You're thinking about the one person who said something negative. So um, to deal with that, distortion, you ask yourself what you're overlooking. You ask yourself if you might not be seeing the whole picture. You think of counterexamples and so on. Now the next one is called discounting the positive. Um, this is similar to mental filter except here you may actually notice some positive things but you explain them away. So for example you're you're not feeling good about yourself, you're having a a low self-esteem day of some kind, someone compliments you. And instead of taking that in and uh, letting that sink in as a as a legitimate thing, you kind of brush it off like, oh, they're just trying to get something or, um, you know, they say that to everybody, you know, some way of, of making it um, not count for you. So a good way to reality test this one is you imagine that a friend of yours was telling you, Hey, uh, you know, Joe came up to me at work and complimented me, but I think he just says that to everybody. What you'd probably say to your friend is something reassuring. You know, you would you would explain that they maybe ought to accept that this person did like them or did, you know, legitimately want to pay them a compliment instead of writing it off. So turn the tables, imagine advising a friend, and then take that advice yourself. Now, the next pattern is called emotional reasoning. And here what's happening is you're basically treating feelings as if they are facts. A classic example of this sort of thing is um, someone's at home and their spouse is late getting home. And they start to worry, and this, and this part of it is jumping to conclusions and all of that, they start to worry there's been an, uh, a, a car crash of some kind. Well, what happens next? You, your body hears your mind saying something bad has happened and your body starts to pump adrenaline and you start to feel anxious about it. And because we're used to paying attention to these cues in the body, these emotional cues in terms of fear and threat, we conclude that if I'm feeling it, I must really have something I need to be afraid of. If I'm feeling fear, there must be a real danger. And so we work ourselves into a frenzy, uh, not realizing that there is no evidence of anything bad that's happened. We are just um, kind of getting into a, a loop of emotional response that we then label as proof that something bad's going on. So one thing you can do here is force yourself to be more factually based in your conclusions. So, so if you can catch yourself in the moment of feeling that anxiety and make yourself treat it like an experiment. Okay, I know I'm feeling all worked up about this, but let me see if the situation actually turns out as bad as I'm predicting. And then, you know, literally check a box, yes or no, did it turn out like you predicted? And if you do that 
anytime you have worked yourself up into this emotional state and you see over and over again that the things you're afraid of don't happen with any regularity, it's going to be harder to ignore that fact. And that's exactly what you want here. You want facts, not just feelings. Now, I should add a caveat here that, of course, emotions are one piece of data that our ego uses to understand the environment and respond to it and uh, understand our role in it. But what we're talking about here is persistent patterns of unnecessary emotional arousal that is treated as facts. And um, that's a different kind of scenario. So um, the next pattern we're going to look at is should statements. Now, um, basically, this is where we feel that something uh, that we're entitled to something or that we're obligated to do something or that someone else is obligated to do something, uh, that we have expectations about the way the world's supposed to work or that people are supposed to treat us or behave. And so basically, when something doesn't turn out like you think it should, you get all mad because that's not the way the world's supposed to work. You know, um, People should be more considerate of one another. Uh, people shouldn't be so rude. I should have done better. Uh, I should have known better. And, of course, the basic remedy here is to bring yourself back to a centered place where you can remember that just because you think something should happen, uh, that doesn't mean it actually is a universal law that it should happen. Um, and uh, this is this is much more subtle than my examples would probably indicate. There are all kinds of ways in our day-to-day -day life that we, we build in expectations that are not based on clear um, natural law, but are based on, you know, what we wish would happen or the way we have kind of calcified our expectations around the way we want the world to work or the way we think of ourselves in the world and our interactions with others. So um, you may have to put some energy into rooting this one out. Uh, the next pattern we're going to talk about is labeling. Now, in a sense, labeling is like an extreme form of overgeneralizing. Here, what's happening is, uh, based on a limited set of behaviors, you are applying a label to yourself or to others that really uh, objectify and dehumanize the person in question, either you or the other person. For example, someone uh, treats you poorly on a given occasion, and they get written off as a jerk or an asshole, um, or you know, we, we make a mistake and we tell ourselves we're such a loser or such a screw-up. These labels limit our ability to make changes based on what information we have about the situation. They, they make it harder to course-correct because we've given ourselves really, we put ourselves in a box where there's the box of people who are not jerks, and then there's the box of people who are jerks. And if that's what you are, that's where you're staying. So whether we're applying these labels to ourselves or to other people, it's dehumanizing, it's objectifying, it's um, not constructive in terms of uh, making it workable. So instead of the label, ask yourself, what are the behaviors I dislike? And this could be in yourself or in someone else. What specific behaviors? Um, Remind yourself that you and the other person and everyone behaves badly sometimes. Maybe I don't need to 
be so broad in, in characterizing this person. Um, ask yourself if this involves labeling someone else, ask yourself uh, if you can put yourself in their shoes to sort of um, see the broader picture of how someone um, might be brought to those behaviors, but it wouldn't mean they were a terrible person. You know, so you, you give, again, you find that kind of gray area. Now, the final pattern we're going to talk about is personalization and blaming. And basically, this is when something negative has occurred and we don't know what else to do with it other than to say it's someone's fault. And either we say it's our fault, in which case it's personalizing, or we say it's someone else's fault, in that case it's blaming. Now, I think there's a natural desire to explain the universe in terms of cause and effect, and sometimes it feels better in the moment to be able to say, somebody screwed up here, even if it's ourselves. Sometimes it's kind of, it's a more concrete thing to hold on to in terms of understanding what's going on. But there's the box again. You know, it's it, it makes it... Um, it makes us less likely to consider other explanations for why things have occurred. It makes us less likely to be motivated toward constructive action, to understanding the subtleties of the problem. And, uh, you know, it binds us into a, a narrow view of the situation. So, in a nutshell, that's the 10 common cognitive distortion patterns. Now, uh, let me give you a word or two of advice on how to use these. There's a basic process that David Burns describes in his book, um, The Feeling Good Handbook, that, and, but this is common to the cognitive therapy approach broadly, um, where each time you have a significant disturbing emotion, at least once a day or so, you do a daily mood log, basically, where you're writing down what thoughts are flying through your head, the sort of the automatic thoughts that are occurring, this will include a lot of, probably, of distorted thinking. Then you identify what the cognitive distortions are in the thoughts, and then you come up with some sort of rational response to that, where you're doing those reality testing questions that I was putting forth for each of the, the distortion patterns. So um, just through repetition and gradually refining your ability to notice when you are employing the cognitive distortions, catch it close to the moment of doing it and replace it with a little more constructive, realistic thinking. Do that day by day over time. You actually um, do reprogram you know, your, yourself in terms of what you believe and how you think. As magicians, I think spending at least a few months of time, no matter how healthy and balanced we feel, spending a few months of time where we're doing daily journaling on this sort of thing is one of those foundational tools that, you know, there's just no downside to it. You're, you're not, there's no, uh, there's nothing to lose by doing this. Um, but you have a, potentially a lot of insight to gain in terms of your thought patterns and the way they affect the way you feel. And that's part of your scientific record, right? Um, another way to use these techniques in terms of magical work is if you're planning a working of some kind, if you've decided you need to do a magical working of some kind, it's very important to consider the psychological conditions that led you to that conclusion. Because if your ego is unduly clouded with these sorts of cognitive dis distortions that we've been discussing, your conclusion that you need to do a magical working to change your situation may be skewed as well. So you might consider whether there are any emotional reasons for desiring the goal that you have in mind. 
um, ask yourself if um, the if there are upsetting conditions or emotions like anger, frustration, dissatisfaction with yourself or your life that are driving your desire to do the magical working, and if those might be better addressed directly on their own plane through cognitive therapy. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, if you use these techniques to make sure that your mind is as clear and unbiased as possible, you will be maximally enabled to stay tuned into that deeper voice, that voice of true will, of deep conscience, the voice of the Holy Guardian Angel, which should rightly be your guide and your path. So I hope these thoughts have been useful for you. I encourage you to look at the resources I provided um, on the blog. There's a link to the list of cognitive distortions. There's a link to uh, Amazon for David Byrne's book. And um, also there is a link to the daily mood log form, which you might want to download and print out if you want to try this approach with yourself for a while. So as always, please send me your comments, feedback, suggestions for future segments to uh, livingthelema at me.com via email, or uh, please visit uh, livingthelema.com for the resources page and my bio if you want to learn more about my work. So once again, thanks for listening. I've enjoyed sharing this with you, and I look forward to talking to you next time. Love is the law, love under will.